Let us hear God's word, 2 Samuel 6 and verse 16. Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both the men and the women, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. So all the people departed, everyone to his house. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Well, thus far, we have seen David seek to bring the ark to Jerusalem, but certainly not without difficulty. Their zeal was mixed with sin, resulting in Uzzah's death. And then we see David keeping God at a distance, as it were, by leaving the ark at Obed-Edom's rather than bringing it to Jerusalem. And uh, yet the Obed-Edom received many blessings. And so after relearning God's commands... And uh, regarding the moving of the ark, David and the Levites and many leaders bring the ark from Obed-Edom's to Jerusalem. Now, as we have seen, 1 Chronicles 13 and 15 have given us a much fuller picture as to this momentous event in Israel's history. And so we come here now to this next part. And um, we begin here then in verse 16, which says, now the ark of the Lord came <clears throat> into the city of David. Um, as it did, sorry, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. All right, well, um, the point here is pretty straightforward. As the ark came in, Michael uh, was not very happy. She responds to David, his dancing, his leaping, his excitement, um, but notice that verses 17 to 19 take us in a different direction. We don't return to the issue of Michael's response until verses 20 and following. And so there's a break here in between, which also then means this response of Michael must overshadow everything that we see in verses 17 to 19. It's a downer, if you will, and a... a uh, um, reminder that not everybody was quite so happy about what was going on. The king was happy, the people were following him, but not everybody was as excited about worshiping Yahweh. So <clears throat> my plan here is to just say a few things about this verse. We'll bring in those ideas more once we get to the last section, uh, focusing especially on verses 17 to 19 this evening. And then uh, I want us to turn to 1 Chronicles 16 for next week and uh, look at the expansion there. So, what we do see here in this verse, though, is another uh, indication of David's excitement. He is praising God. He is dancing, whirling, and leaping here. Uh, there is much celebration, as we've talked about. The musicians are, are part of this, the marching bands, as it were, um, and certainly there was the procession of Levites and maybe and likely even others. 
And remember, especially the Kohathites were the ones carrying the ark. And so um, we have this idea, but we have this shadow that is cast upon this idea, and we're going to see this large contrast um, from the celebration to Michael's uh, sin. All right, so let's look then, especially here tonight, at verses 17 to 19. So verse 17 So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in his place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. All right, well, first of all, we are told that the ark is brought into the tabernacle. Now, what was this? Was it the tabernacle or was it another tabernacle, another tent? Well, we could look at a variety of places here, and we will look at some different things tonight. But let's turn first to 2 Chronicles and chapter 1. Second Chronicles chapter 1. And the focus here, of course, on Solomon. Now let's pick up in verse 3. 2 Chronicles 1, 3. Then Solomon... And all the assembly with him went to the high place that was at Gibeon, for the tabernacle of meeting with God was there, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness. But David had brought up the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim to the place David had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it at Jerusalem. Now the bronze altar that Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made, he put before the tabernacle of the Lord, Solomon, and the assembly, Uh, sought him there. And Solomon went up there to the bronze altar before the Lord, which was at the tabernacle of meeting, and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. All right, now in these verses, you see we have uh, some clarity in this regard. Uh, We are told here specifically that David establishes a different tent, a different tabernacle in Jerusalem, not the tabernacle. We are told here, of course, that the tabernacle is in Gibeon. So here's where I want you to look at your maps just a moment. And again, on the land of the 12 tribes map, see where Jerusalem is. Again, remember Beth Shemesh, and then the ark brought to Kiriath-Jerim, and then here to Jerusalem. And you'll notice here on the map where Gibeon is, north and east of Kiriath-Jerim, and you see where Jerusalem is in comparison. Now remember Gibeah, is just a couple miles away. <clears throat> Remember, that was Saul's capital, his uh, place his, uh, while he was king. Remember also, Nob is about two miles north and east of Jerusalem. Okay, now, some of these places, of course, are not on the map, but you get a sense of uh, this general location. So you're talking you know, roughly five miles from Jerusalem to Gibeon. Okay, so kind of like driving from here to Harrisville. All right, now, I want us to take a little bit of time here tonight and talk a little bit about the tabernacle, its location, and some of the events historically in in regard to it. Uh, It's for the simple reason, because this is about worship. This is about the gospel. This is the central idea in the Old Testament in regard to God's grace to his people. The gospel, as I talked about in Exodus 25, is presented to us in the tabernacle and then later, of course, the temple. And so 
the better we understand that, the better we will understand the work of Christ. And so this is part of that mindset of importance. So you recall back in Joshua chapter 18, verse 1, that we were told that uh, God had Israel establish a tabernacle there in Shiloh. But, as we know, it didn't stay there. So <clears throat> let's look at a few passages here. Let's turn first to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. <clears throat> All right, this is a, <clears throat> a lengthy psalm, uh, as you see, this psalm of Asaph. And uh, lots that can be said, but let me focus our attention, especially beginning in verse 56. And we see, I'll just summarize here briefly, you see how their sin <clears throat> provoked the Lord. And so... They turned away from God, <clears throat> provoking them to anger. Verse 58, their, their idols, God is furious. 59, so verse 60, he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent he had placed among men. And so <clears throat> we see here that there is a judgment on Shiloh and the tabernacle that was there. If you turn over to Jeremiah and chapter 7, we see another reference to this. In Jeremiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 12, it says, God speaking to Jeremiah, But go now to my place which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these works, says the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name in which you trust and to this place which I gave to you and your fathers as I have done to Shiloh. I'll cast you out of my sight as I have cast out all your brethren, the whole posterity of Ephraim. So remember, this is Jeremiah. So you're, you know, 400 years later and uh, from the events that we're talking about here in 2 Samuel. So uh, we see another indication of God's judgment on Shiloh. And the threat here is God's going to do it again now with the temple and with Jerusalem. Um, just one more to read briefly. This is Jeremiah 26. And in verse 6 it says, <clears throat> um, Then I will make this house like Shiloh, and will make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth. And so we have these three passages here that specifically indicate to us of God's judgment upon Shiloh. Well, when did this take place? Well, <clears throat> we don't know for sure. Uh, there's not a clear text that would indicate uh, when it took place, but most of your conservative scholars would agree that it probably happened in 1 Samuel 4. So let's turn there just a moment. And you recall that in this uh, passage. This is when uh, the sons of Eli and Israel were fighting against the Philistines and they were not succeeding, so they took the ark and, of course, they were defeated. The ark was captured, all this uh, part of the story. Eli dies, the sons die, and so on. And if you look especially there at verse 12, it says, a man ran, uh, excuse me, that a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day and came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. 
That's the last mention of Shiloh for a period of time. In fact, if you uh, look briefly at 1 Kings chapter 2, here we see uh, the days of Solomon. And this is early on. This is when Adonijah tried to take the throne instead of Solomon, and Abiathar supported Adonijah. And so we see then in 1 Kings 2, verse 27, it says, Solomon removed Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, that he might fulfill the word of the Lord, which he spoke concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh. So the judgment that came upon Eli for a sin is now finally realized. Okay? We see uh, his sons die, <clears throat> the priests at Nob are killed, and now here Abiathar, the remaining descendant of, of uh, Eli, is, is uh, deposed from his office. Well, that's about 100 years in between 1 Samuel 4 and 1 Kings chapter 2. And Shiloh is only mentioned once in between, and that is in 1 Samuel chapter 14. <clears throat> and in 1 Samuel 14, verse 1, it says, It happened one day that Jonathan the son of Saul said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison that's on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Hydra, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. The people did not know that Jonathan had gone. So for roughly 100 years, Shiloh is mentioned once in the text, and it's here. We see Saul and Gibeah. We see this priest with an ephod with Saul in Gibeah. And he, of course, is connected with Eli. Should we then presume that the tabernacle is now with Saul? Uh, should we now presume that the, uh, uh, the tabernacle in Shiloh had been destroyed by this point? Okay, we do believe this happened relatively early on in, in Saul's rule here. Um, again, we cannot say for sure. But at some point, the tabernacle moved from Shiloh elsewhere. And so if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 21, we know that it ends up in Nob because of what is described here for us. Here, of course, is the account of David escaping from Saul and coming to Nob and asking for help. And notice it says there about the uh, holy bread. Okay, So uh, notice uh, verse 4 in particular. Well, if there's holy bread, there needs to be the table of showbread too, right? And so note that assumption there. And then even down in verse 9 about the sword of Goliath, it's wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. Now that doesn't guarantee that the tabernacle is there, but it also suggests it along with the table of showbread. So it sounds like then at some point the tabernacle was either moved from Shiloh to Nob or if it was destroyed, it was then rebuilt and put in Shiloh, or excuse me, put in Nob, put in Nob. Not the ark, that's of course in Beth Shemesh and then Kiriath Jearim. You remember I mentioned a couple weeks ago <coughs> when we looked at Beth Shemesh and how they sent the ark to Kiriath Jearim, I asked, well, why didn't they take it back to Shiloh? Well, uh, it 
certainly sounds like there was no place to go. Now we're speculating, but it certainly would fit. Now why they didn't send it to Nob? Well, maybe it wasn't there yet. Maybe it had to be rebuilt. Again, there's just a lot of questions we are not uh, given privy uh, to uh, some of this history. What is clear is that Saul never moved the ark from kiriath to Gibeah or to Nob. With the priests here about two miles away from Jerusalem, um, Saul's not too concerned about bringing everything together like David is doing. And he has Ahijah there with him. Um, but, you know, uh, Gibeah was a Levitical city, so to have a Levite there is not all that unusual. But it doesn't seem like Saul is all that concerned about worship. Nob is not a Levitical city. Why did they put it here? Maybe it's because Saul uh, was a threat and they didn't uh, want to get too close to him. Uh, <clears throat> again, lots of questions. But at some point, the tabernacle ends up in Nob, and then it ends up in Gibeon, as we read in Second Chronicles 1. Did this happen after the priests were killed in Nob, during Saul's control? Did it happen after Saul's death? Okay, as David is ruling in Hebron, did Ishbosheth and Abner bring the tabernacle to Gibeon? It was in Benjamin. Maybe it helped to consolidate power of some kind. Okay, so again, lots of questions. We don't know for sure. Let's turn a moment to 1 Kings chapter 8. In 1 Kings 8, here we see uh, Solomon has everything ready for the temple, and now we see uh, its dedication and so on. And in 1 Kings 8, let's pick up in verse 2. It says, Therefore all the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. So right, think of Day of Atonement time frame. So all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark. Then they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priests and the Levites brought them up. Now it doesn't expand on that, but... In light of what we read in 2 Chronicles 1, right, they brought it from Gibeon to Jerusalem. The ark's already there in David's tent. They bring everything else now here for the establishment of the temple. Now again, this is, um, in one sense, you're like, what's the point? Well, the point is, the better we understand the history of worship in Israel, the better we'll understand um, just... The importance of worship, the importance of the gospel. Do you see this hint? The assumption? You've got, if you will, God's house scattered in various places. It keeps moving around. Do you see how that anticipates the coming of Christ in John chapter 4? That there is no central location for worship now that Christ has come. But we even see a hint of it here in the Old Covenant. From Shiloh to Nob to Gibeon, to Jerusalem. The ark in Beth Shemesh, Kiriath Jerim, Jerusalem, right? It, it keeps moving around because right, we can worship God anywhere. The ideas of atonement can be done anywhere, even here in western Pennsylvania. So in one sense, I haven't answered any questions here in the last, whatever, 10 minutes. 
Uh, on the other hand, it does help us to give a, a better understanding of its history and even to anticipate um, the New Testament and the coming of Christ. All right, well, let's now come to some a little more certain things. <laughs> let's turn back to 2 Samuel 6. And notice that the second half of verse 17 says about David offering burnt offerings and peace offerings. And notice it happens here, of course, before the Lord. The ark is, of course, now in Jerusalem. Uh, but did David then build an altar in Jerusalem? Did he bring the bronze altar from <clears throat> Gibeon down? Uh, did they actually go to Gibeon and offer the sacrifices there and then return to Jerusalem? Some more questions, but the text does suggest to us, especially in the Hebrew, that uh, the uh, actions did take place in Jerusalem, these sacrifices. And so either David brought the altar, the bronze altar, or built another one. Now, as for these offerings, the burnt offering, of course, refers to the whole burnt offering. We see that in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 1. And in this offering, the animal obviously was killed, right? You have the ideas of atonement, right? The hand is placed on the head, the imputation of the sin of the sinner onto uh, the substitute. That substitute is killed. <clears throat> the imputation of the perfection of the animal onto the sinner. All those things are part of it. But then the whole sacrifice was burned on the altar. Because the emphasis here is not justification, though justification is part of it. The emphasis of this sacrifice is sanctification, to give of ourselves completely to God, just like the substitute gave himself completely to God. Yes, because Jesus gave himself completely to God, we can be justified. But we also need to give ourselves completely to God in every way, just like this, uh, this animal. It's a total consecration to God is what is emphasized here. And so... We must be offering our whole burnt offering every day kind of idea in our sanctification. Now, the second one here is the peace offering, also called the fellowship offering. And uh, just like with the other one, right, the hand was placed on the head, it was killed, right? The ideas of imputation and, and so forth, justification are here. Uh, but the emphasis here of this particular sacrifice is that part of the animal then was given to the priests for their, uh, their food. Part of it was burned. And then part of it was taken and eaten by the person who brought the offering or the family. And you might remember at the very beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 1, that's what they did. They came to Shiloh and had their peace offerings. Um, and so here then, uh, David is doing it for the nation. In this time of celebration, he is bringing uh, this offering and celebrating in this way. Okay? Now, I'll return to this point, but it's possible that the meat that would be given to the, the one bringing the sacrifice was then given to the people. Well, I'll return to that thought in a moment. <clears throat> but what this sacrifice emphasizes is peace with God, fellowship with God. Whereas the first one emphasizes giving ourselves completely to the Lord, which of course is what David is doing here. It also is emphasizing we can have fellowship with God. Okay. 
And so it, it is not only the Passover meal that anticipates the Lord's Supper. It is the peace offering that anticipates the Lord's Supper. This is the covenant meal where the people would eat with God. Justification's been done, and so we can have fellowship with him. And so uh, no surprise that David would offer this kind of sacrifice in this context. And all of this, of course, points forward to Jesus. And through his substitutionary work, we have peace with God. We can have fellowship with God. All right, so then let's look at verse 18. Now, when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And so David is offering sacrifices. Now he is blessing the people. And note the name here that is given. It's not just the name of Yahweh, but the name of Yahweh of hosts. And you might remember the first time that name is used is in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Um, and so the connection in that way. And so our covenant Lord, who rules over all things, all the hosts of heaven, all the hosts of Israel, that name is being placed upon the people. Now surely David would have said these words, right? Number six, God commands this. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his son saying, this is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. And so David is doing that very thing. He is putting the name of Yahweh of hosts upon the people. All right, now do you see um, a potential problem or at least question here? I thought the priests were to do the sacrifices. I thought it was the priest that was supposed to pronounce the blessing. But the king is doing it here. Now, as you read through this, or in First Chronicles, or uh, even other uh, passages, there is no indication that David did wrongly. Clearly, at the beginning of the chapter, he did. <laughs> hey, Uzzah died. But there's no indication whatsoever that what David is doing here is forbidden. So what does this mean? Well, some people suggest that David is doing it as the leader but he did not actually kill the animals and sacrifice them. He did not actually pronounce the words of blessing. The priest did. And so some have taken it in this way. So remember we read last week that Zadok and Abiathar were part of this event. And so they were the ones leading the priests and the Levites in sacrifice. And they were the ones pronouncing the blessings. And that certainly is a possibility. And there's, there's no real reason to object to that idea. But some have said, it does say David did it. And so, because it says David did it, because there is no indication that what he did was forbidden, we should therefore see this as a typological act on David's part. In other words, he acted as a priest king, yes, leading the priests and the Levites, but also actively doing it. Now, he's also a prophet, right? We have all these psalms and so forth, right? You remember last week we saw in verse 14 that he dressed like a priest, and that point was more clearly stated in 1 Chronicles. Hey, remember, he, 
He uh, dressed like a priest. Now he is acting like a priest through the sacrifices and the blessing. Do you remember somebody else in Jerusalem who did the same thing? So a thousand years before, Melchizedek was a priest king in Jerusalem doing both of these things. And then, of course, go a thousand years the other direction. We come to Christ, who is our priest king and our prophet. And so some have said that this action of David was not something any king was to do. But David did it because he's a type of Christ. He is connected to Melchizedek in this way, and he anticipates the coming of Christ, our prophet, our priest, and our king, who has uh, offered himself as sacrifice and has truly blessed us. So um, I kind of debate in my own mind which one is emphasized here, which one should we go with, because both of them are true. Um, and so I'll leave you to, to ponder that some more. Um, by verse 19 then, it says, Then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both the women and the men, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. So all the people departed, everyone to his house. Notice here, first of all, David is again acting like a priest. He is giving gifts. Now, on the one hand, you could say David is throwing candy to the children, so to speak, um, and he is yet giving it to everyone, it says, uh, at least everyone who was there, though it is possible to read this to everyone throughout all of Israel. The, the, that repeated line there, among the whole multitude of Israel, that one suggests to us, uh, at least I think in the Hebrew, it suggests to us that it was just given to the people who were there um, and not everyone in Israel. But still, this would have been a lot of stuff. How many people were there? We don't know. Was it again 30,000 like before? Was it more? Was it less? We're not told. Uh, but each person received these three things, a loaf of bread, New King James says a piece of meat and then a cake of raisins. Now the first one, a loaf of bread, um, that term is used in the grain offering. And the other offerings were those things were brought. So some have suggested that uh, David didn't give him a loaf of bread to eat, but to offer as uh, a sacrifice to the Lord, along with the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. And maybe that's true. Um, the, the term here for piece of meat, um, that one is more uncertain. And notice in the New King James, it says of meat in italics, which means that's an interpretation. Um, First Chronicles doesn't help us. Okay? It says the same thing. The Septuagint does give us a little direction here. When they translated it into Greek, the word that is used there is the word for a cake. And so others have suggested, and maybe your translation has a footnote or something like that, that this term is not a piece of meat, but actually a cake of dates. We have a cake of raisins, and a cake of dates may have been what this term means. Um, but if it was a piece of meat, if that is accurate, it would suggest that the peace offering meat that was taken by the person bringing the sacrifice and eaten is what now is given to the people. Again, some 
uh, lack of clarity there, but uh, at least we get the overall point. David is offering gifts to the people here in this way. Now, let me first say this. David is not doing the bread and circuses approach that evil rulers do. Evil rulers try to control the masses through entertainment and by giving them things. We see this clearly in the Roman Empire. If you've ever seen the movie Gladiator, they show that very clearly. Um, And that's exactly what happened in our country during the shutdown. Bread and circuses. Uh, Probably every family or individual in here received money from the government during the shutdown. You got your bread, maybe even multiple checks. And certainly there was entertainment. Oh, you you couldn't go to an arena for it. They still had lots of entertainment on TV or the Internet. And that's because these evil rulers are trying to control us and manipulate us through the virus and the vaccine and the shutdown and all these sort of things, bread and circuses. And they're still doing it, of course, and did it before that, too. But we saw it very clearly there. David is not doing it that way. David is a different kind of ruler. Certainly not perfect, as we have seen. But he is not the evil ruler trying to manipulate and control the masses. He is leading people in celebration of Yahweh. He is leading people in worship. And he is giving gifts to men as as part of that celebration. So it's a very different approach here on David's part. So let's trace this thought here a little bit more. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 14. And a few moments ago, I mentioned Melchizedek. So let's read a little bit here. Genesis chapter 14. Remember, Abraham just went and defeated the kings, and he had some gifts to give, you might say. But note what happens. Verse 18, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. He's the one giving the gifts. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now there's no clear reference here to a sacrifice, but notice that uh, Melchizedek is blessing and he is giving gifts like a priest would do. And of course he is a priest king. Let's turn now to Psalm 68. Psalm 68, another rather lengthy psalm for us here. I'm certainly not going to delve into this too deeply, but let me call your attention here to this psalm of David in in these ways. Notice, especially verses 1 to 14, is a general summary of God's um, blessings for Israel. How he defeated the wicked, so we sing praises, verse 4, and he has set us uh, into... uh, Uh, places of prosperity, verse 6. He went before the people and so forth. You see Sinai is mentioned. So the suggestion here, though it's not quite as explicit, is the exodus, the wilderness wandering, coming to Sinai, and even uh, defeating uh, the the, uh, Amorites and such before they crossed the Jordan River. Because if you look at verse 15, 
It says, a mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Now remember, Og, king of Bashan, right? He was one of the, that giant that was uh, defeated by Israel uh, there before they crossed the Jordan River. Um, and so, again, an allusion to that event. But then verse 16, why do you fume within me, you mountains of many peaks? This is the mountain which God desires to dwell in. Yes, the Lord will dwell in it forever. In other words, the mountains of Bashan, they were a whole lot bigger and prettier and more grand and so on and so forth compared to Mount Zion. But God didn't put his throne in the mountains of Bashan. He put it in Mount Zion. And that's why the mountains of Bashan are envious. But note the point. God wants to dwell forever there in Mount Zion is the, is the idea. So then verse 17, the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them as in Sinai in the holy place. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. Now notice here then, as they ascended up to Mount Zion, and they put God's presence there, gifts were given, as it says here. But it, note the emphasis, he received gifts. Okay, and then uh, the song continues, let's jump down to verse 24. Uh, they have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers went before, the players on instruments followed after. Among them were the maidens playing timbrels. Bless God in the congregations, the Lord from the fountain of Israel. There is little Benjamin, their leader, the princes of Judah and their company, the princes of Zebulun and the princes of Naphtali. And of course, it continues, note how it ends with more praises to God. All right, we can't get into everything here in the psalm tonight, but the point is simply this. There are people who think that Psalm 68, written, right, see the superscription here, written by David, that this psalm was actually written for this event that we're talking about in 2 Samuel 6. And so this idea of this procession, God coming into his sanctuary, okay, leading up, ascending on high, and so on and so forth, that all these things are allusions to and references to uh, David bringing the ark into Jerusalem. Now one of the reasons why we say that is because of how the New Testament uses this verse, verse 18. David gave gifts. Later, Solomon gives gifts. That recalls Melchizedek. So let's turn then to Ephesians chapter 4. <clears throat> Ephesians, okay, we read from chapter 2 earlier. Okay. Chapters 1 to 3 are basically an explanation of the gospel. Chapters 4 and following are uh, an emphasis on how we should then live. And notice how chapter 4 uh, begins, but we'll begin especially in verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, this is Psalm 68, 18. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. All right, obviously you see the difference in that verb, okay? Not, not gifts were brought, but he gave gifts, um, right? Somewhere along the line in the Septuagint, we see the change and so forth. 
And the author here, uh, uh, Paul, in this case, uh, is indicating to us this connection with Christ. David gave gifts when God ascended on high. When Jesus ascended on high at the ascension, he gave gifts. Keep reading verse 9. Now this he ascended. What does it mean that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So he descended on earth. He lived his life, right, his death and so on, and his resurrection. And then he ascended into heaven and he gave gifts. Well, what did he give? Did he give a loaf of bread and a piece of meat and a cake of raisins? Verse 11, and he himself gave some to be apostles some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. And he continues here. Do you see, then, the connection? Um, As David... And before him, Melchizedek gave gifts as a priest king. So Christ came, and of course, he conquered, conquering our enemies, defeating Satan, crushing his head, defeating death, rising again from the dead, uh, ensuring our restoration to God and our uh, eternal life. And God uh, then, here through Christ, gave gifts to the church. As David and Melchizedek gave gifts, so here Jesus. Not food, though, but leaders. I am one of those gifts. Your elders and deacons are part of these gifts. Okay? And in a broad sense, we all have been gifted as Christians. We all have various gifts <laughs> that we are to use for the edification and the building of the church. It's not just your ordained leaders, but every one of us should do this. The emphasis here, of course, is on the leadership, but certainly is broader than that. Again, David gave gifts to everyone. So God, through Christ here, specifically gave gifts to all of his people. And, of course, Paul speaks of that in uh, 1 Corinthians, for example, about the body. And uh, uh, he is the head, and we are all different members, and so on and so forth. So do you see these connections? The connections are intentional. And this is why, if I'm going to make a choice, did David have the priest do all these things, or did he do it? I'm inclined to think that he did it because of the connections with Melchizedek and because of the connections here with Christ. So, tonight, we have seen some about the location of the ark. We've seen how David celebrated And we've seen some of these biblical theology connections here and how it points us to Christ. And so let me end simply with this thought. Our priest king, our prophet has come. And he has come to be with us, not in a box, not in a tent. But he came, of course, as a son of God. And now he is with us by his spirit, residing within us, residing here in this place. He has given us all gifts. Let's use those gifts for God's glory. But our focus here is praise God. Okay? He is with us. He has done these things to secure our salvation 
as the whole burnt offering, as the peace offering, so that we can fellowship with God and so forth. And so let's praise God for these things. Now, Lord willing, next time we will look at First Chronicles chapter 16, where the whole chapter, for the most part, emphasizes how they did praise the Lord. All right, well, let's pray together. Our Father, our God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for what you teach us. We thank you how uh, it all fits together. And uh, as we have seen here in this way, um, Lord, though your word at, at times is, is somewhat murky and we don't understand how some things fit together, uh, certainly we can see the main ideas. And uh, for that, Lord, we give you praise. We thank you, Lord, for David and for this event and how it points us to you and what you have done, our Lord Jesus, in coming to be with us, to offer yourself as a sacrifice, to rise again, to uh, ascend into heaven, to give us gifts, to bless us. For this, Lord, we give you thanks. We give you praise. And um, may we then live accordingly. May we, with David, rejoice. May we not be like Michael and miss the point. And so, Lord, we pray for your, your uh, work in us here in these ways. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.